The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. China's not a normal nation state. It's too big for any administration to run in the normal way. And so this ideological governance, this ritual conformity is a way to bring order. So you've got Confucianism, you've got Stalinism, and you've got Chinese nationalism. Those are the three streams you get in Xi Jinping thought, and he's pushing it hard. It's a synthesis, it's a new blend, and it's a hybrid. But this hybrid was very important to Communist Party because they needed to establish their own theory and to establish their legitimacy. And in today's China, it's about political legitimacy, it's about cultural legitimacy as well. In this episode, the ideological governance of Xi Jinping. And is it a return to the methods of Mao? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Since Xi Jinping became president of China in 2013, he's been pursuing the ambitious goal of restoring China to its former glory with grand schemes like the Belt and Road Initiative. As well, he's made his anti-corruption drive against officials within both the government and the Chinese Communist Party a cornerstone of his presidency. And he's increasingly muzzling dissent, particularly on social media. At the same time, she has cemented his position as absolute leader of country and party, with the limits on presidential terms removed, opening the door for lifetime leadership not seen since the days of Mao Zedong. To outside observers, Xi Jinping's hardline methods look like a throwback to those of Mao from the early 1940s onwards. But is it fair to compare Xi's leadership style with Mao's? Or are Xi's methods and ideological focus simply what it takes to bring about his greater plans for a more glorious China? To examine the methods and motives of China's president and the history to which they're compared, we're joined by veteran China historian Professor Timothy Cheek from the University of British Columbia in Canada and by Dr Delia Lin, a China political scientist from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Delia, and welcome, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Let's start with a a very basic question. How important is ideology in Xi Jinping's China to the way he governs, Tim? Well, I think that uh, ideology is absolutely central to Xi Jinping's thinking and I think pretty central to the Communist Party. As for the rest of China, I'm not so sure. So Xi Jinping believes that ideological uniformity, saying and professing the same kind of thoughts and not contradicting them is the way to organize the party and keep China hanging together. And again, when it comes to society, I don't know, Delia, what would you say? (laughs) I think ideology is real um, for Xi Jinping. So we tend to think ideology as something abstract. It's out there and you don't have to pay attention to it. You just have to perform it when you need it. At meetings or in your writing, you use those words and then you'll be fine. I think under Xi Jinping, he's done more than that. So it's not just a brand. Um, It's actually a conscious, systematic building exercise, I believe. Uh, So in the legal system, that's where I work on judicial system and also in language 
which in state media, things you can say, things you're not allowed to say, words you're allowed to use, words you're not allowed to use.、Um, it's really like a prism through which all the ideas and expressions are reflected. Is that the key difference? Do you think with Xi? Because China has always been ideological. Whether you're Qing Dynasty, whether you're nationalist prior to Mao and the Communists, is that the difference with Xi? The fact that it is ubiquitous, that it pervades everything. I think yes or no.、Uh, you certainly can see the common thread in、um, governance today. If you really look at even imperial statecraft, and Tim knows all about that. And what is the common thread? And I think this kind of singing one's beliefs, one's actions, one's words, be in unison. I think that sort of runs through Confucianism, runs through Imperial China, runs through、uh, Mao's era, runs through pre-Xi era and Xi era. Believing that every single thing you say or every behavior that you have, nothing is too trivial, and there's no such a thing as your private space. Everything is political. So if you look at Confucian political. Philosophy, if we treat it as political philosophy, it is as political as psychological and sociological. So Mencius has worked it all out about human innate predispositions. You've got these four predispositions, and they give rise to the four cardinal virtues. So what does a state, what does a ruler need to do? The ruler needs to cultivate those virtues to make human beings perfect, attaining those perfect character, and that is the very fundamental role. Of a ruler, so Xi Jinping has certainly taken that on. But has he, Tim? Has he, as Delia suggests, taken that a step further so that it now does pervade everything? He's brought it back, and so I like to call it his his Counter Reformation. The past twenty years has seen an acceptance by the Communist Party that, well, maybe people aren't going to talk about the、uh, uniform language and the the bar for what you had to do to be okay and not be in trouble got lower and lower. You know, almost to the point where you were in Taiwan in the seventies, which is if you just stayed out of trouble. But now it's coming back to no, you actually have to reaffirm and show your loyalty. By acting and professing, and as Delia was saying, this is not just some random communist thing. There is a deep history in Chinese、uh, statecraft of a performance, and the Confucian values, and we are talking about, of course, are the state Confucian values of the dynasties. There were quite certainly independent Confucians who thought otherwise. It's it's a big culture, but in state Confucianism, it's exactly what Delia said: is that to cultivate the innate goodness of people who are, however, unfortunately, not being good at the moment. The ruler needs to demonstrate how to act, and so Confucian、uh, theory always says the way to morality is start acting moral, and you'll start feeling moral. This whole concept of li decorum is central, and that's what's key. This li, which we often translate as rites or rituals, the first thing we think about in the West is, oh, ritual form is like you're just pretending. It's empty. It doesn't have any content. And I think for those of us working on modern China, trying to figure out a way to convey to everyone else, I was talking to Fabio Lanza, a very fine scholar who's visiting Sydney at the moment, and you know, he said, you know, people don't understand. He's Italian. He said, they don't understand ideology. You don't have to believe. It. You just have to do it. And、uh, Woody Watson, the great anthropologist of China, he makes the distinction between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So, really, this ideological governance is about orthopraxy. 
you show order, you reflect cosmic order, you stop doing bad things. Because if you're studying your Xi Jinping and ordering, you know, what is it, four dishes in one soup and you know, la, 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 you know, you're not going to be doing some of those bad things. So I want to look further at Xi and I, this description, this counter-reformation, Tim, that you refer to is absolutely fascinating. But before we stay in the present. Let's go back to the past a bit. Delia, tell us a little about how Mao used ideology, particularly in the early days of the party formation before we had the Republic Mm. of China. So Mao is uh, celebrated and she particularly celebrates that because he's on the same path in that sense that uh, it's called standardizing. Marxism. So we talk about Marxism, we think that Marxism is the ideology for China, but it's not. It's a particular version of it. So standardizing Zhongguohua, it's Marxist-Zhongguohua. So the government openly talks about that. It's not something that uh, scholars make it up. They themselves admit that. And uh, Mao Zedong, to everyone's surprise, he was actually an ardent reader of Confucianism. He was a fan of them. So in 1917, Yang Mao published a paper called Research on Physical Education. Surprise, surprise, it's all about Confucianism, physical education. And he actually placed uh, Confucius, Sakyamuni, Buddhist founder, and also Jesus Christ in parallel with each other, calling them saints and great thinkers. And also, in 1964, someone did studies on all the references and the quotes Mao used in his four volumes of his works, studied all the quotes and references that he had referred to, so which came at the top of the list, top three. First one was Stalin. 24%. Second one was Confucius, Confucianism, 22%, followed by Lenin, 18%. Which came at the bottom? Marx and Engels. <laughs> so, and she wasn't too different. So if you look at the people have done research, and well, officials have done research, not just scholars, uh, on Xi Jinping's quotes, uh, hundreds of quotes that he's used, what came at the top? Confucianism. So for Mao, he was really just continuing a tradition, a tradition that he had been brought up to understand and, and was part of his life and was useful to him. He was continuing the form of ideological governance, this way of bringing this huge territory. We call uh, the country uh, formerly known as the Qing Dynasty. It's not a normal nation state. And uh, it's too big for any administration to run in the normal way. And so this ideological governance, this ritual conformity is a way to bring order. It's also more rigorously applied inside the nomenclatura, inside the, the party itself. People just have to sort of show nice. Party members have to go to study sessions and, you know, do these sorts of things. And so I think what Delia really brings up is that Mao's work and the ideology of the Communist Party today is a synthesis of traditional Chinese norms. So it's not just a repeat of the dynasties, nor is it just purely Stalinism. Both are very important, but what you get is your wonderful new blend. Homegrown blend. You got it, you know. And do you think that when you look at, at Mao and how he succeeded against the nationalists, that it was this this use of ideology that allowed him to succeed? No, I think he had a better army. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek was actually quite popular in the high war period, the early 40s, and it was the publication of his book, China's Destiny, Zhongguo de Mingyun that scared the living daylights out of the Chinese communists because it was kind of impressive. Chiang Kai-shek made his bid to say, I'm fitting into the China narrative, the hundred years of humiliation. And Mao turned right around. Mao from, had been trying to, to push that. And that's when the party gave Mao top power, just the same month that Chiang Kai-shek's book came out in the mid-40s. And uh, it is the necessity to 
take on the national myth. So you've got Confucianism, you've got Stalinism, and you've got Chinese nationalism. And that nationalism is a very 20th century uh, Euro-North American kind of, of racial nationalism. I would say those are the three streams you get in Xi Jinping thought, and he's pushing it hard. But was it Mao's ability to bring all of those past uh, methods of ideological governance into what he wanted to achieve that, that allowed him to be so successful in those early days? There's more to Mao than, than the person himself. What would you say, Delia? Yeah, I would say <laughs> Mao certainly succeeded in building this ideological battlefield. I completely agree with the team by saying that it's a synthesis, it's a, it's a new blend and it's a, it's a hybrid. Um, but this hybrid was very important to Communist Party because they needed to establish their own theory and to establish their legitimacy. And in today's China, it's about political legitimacy, it's about cultural legitimacy as well. So when we look at the way that they have framed or constructed their ideology, also we need to look at what they're against. So they pick uh, from ideology bits and pieces that they used from Marxism, from Stalinism, from Confucianism. They're all animation for this ideological battlefield. What Mao and Xi was in common is that what they were battling was political liberalism. Mm. And that was different from pre-Xi era. I think pre-Xi era, political liberalism or liberal democracy wasn't that enemy. It was just, it was not preferred. But there was still a lot of space in talking about that. There were so many liberals and Tim worked with so many of them. Uh, you could still talk about those ideologies. They were still considered as something, some sort of idealistic or good. They're not bad words. Whereas in Mao's time, in Xi's time, liberalism is a bad word. I, I want to ask, though, how did the party explain the you know, the massive negatives of Mao's time? I mean, the, the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, how did they fit into the ideological narrative? It's an important thing that they handled because the great difference between the People's Republic of China and the former Soviet Union is that China never demaoized fully. So they didn't do a de-Stalinization. They didn't like the actual de-Stalinization in the 50s, and that's when they, uh, China began to fall out with the Soviet Union. And so with Mao, it's from the Sixth Plenum in 1981, it's the resolution on party history that shapes all public expressions of modern Chinese history. If you publish in China, you have to be in accord with the uh, resolution on some questions in the history of our party since the founding of the nation. It came out in June 1981. And what they do, they don't use this actual phrase, but everyone gets it, 70-30. Mao was 70% good, 30% bad. Great Leap Forward, that was local leaders were bad. Cultural Revolution, that was bad. But Mao did so many good things. But I'm much more fond of Chen Yun. Chen Yun was asked late in his life, and they said, how do we assess Mao? Chen Yun was a very senior leader in the Communist Party and in Mao's generation. And he said, if Mao had died in 1952, he'd be a saint and he would be in the temples. If he died in 1966, 65, you know, we'd say, well, you know, he made mistakes, but he's still a great leader. But unfortunately, he didn't die until 1976. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that way of thinking, I think, is pretty much embedded in the Chinese psyche. It's not about the percentage. It's about that way of thinking that it doesn't matter how many bad things the party did, but it saved China. And it got China out of this humiliation. Um, and China needs a new a way of governance that's different from the West because the Chinese people are made differently. I've had so many conversations with um, Chinese scholars, Chinese intellectuals who 
in the beginning seem to be very liberal-minded. But when you get into really deep conversation, a lot of those fundamental beliefs are in there. So we had a discussion with a, a Chinese intellectual. He's a party member, but he sounded really liberal. And he wasn't really a big fan of this Xue Xi Qiangguo, the study Xi app, and, and all that. He had lots of great views. But when we got down to talking about the future of China and the rule of the Communist Party, he strongly believed that the Chinese people are not made for democracy. And I said, well, this is Confucian idea, that everybody's a whole suji discourse in China as well, um, meaning that there was some sort of predisposition in this particular race that would determine the political paths that the nation takes. So this kind of way of thinking, that's part of ideology as well. We don't notice that because it's embedded Dealer, you've got a very good point when you talk about soldier or quality of the people. You know, it reminds me of the Australian culture cringe, you know. So, oh, we're not good enough. And Sun Yat-sen called China people the loose sheet the of loose sand. Yep. Chiang Kai-shek and said, you know, yep. we'll have political tutelage. The, the optimistic view is the Chinese people aren't ready yet, but they can be trained. That's right. The not optimistic one is it's going to take a really long time. Long time. But what you really nail is the complicity of Chinese elites with the Communist Party. It really fits in with the intellectual elitism that is very strong amongst people I love and, 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 and respect, but they, they just don't feel, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton, they just don't trust the common people and they fear the mob. The issue we're dealing with here, and again, Delia, uh, you, you hit it, it's what's in people's minds. Well, I call it living Maoism. It's about Maoism, totally not right. Mao the man. Mm. And Maoism is this this ideological thinking, this black and white thinking. I like it as an intellectual, but, you know, you know great respect for intellectuals. You don't get anything like that in Australia or Canada, you know, in the United States. Feeling left out here. Yeah, we're just useless. You know, the Communist Party doesn't repress what's not important, you know. And so, you know, in, in a very sad way, the intellectual repression reflects the importance of intellectuals in China. It doesn't justify it, but it does reflect the importance. Maoism is in people's habits. The man I cite is Chen Lichun. So Chen Lichun, famous left-wing scholar up in Peking University, a scholar of Lu Xun, just did a beautiful two-volume book on Mao culture and Mao period. And he says, I grew up with Mao. I'm covered with Mao. And he, the word he added was Qingli. We have to Qingli. We have to sort through and clarify what Maoism is in our heads before we can move forward and be a modern state. And Qingli is the word you use for cleaning out class enemies. And of course, high-level academics have been absolutely key to providing a sort of historical harmonization of the different strands of ideology through the ages of the party. Absolutely. And I think a very important article came out at the beginning of last year. It was by Zhang Shikung, which was promoting Xi Jinping thought. And he's a professor at Peking University, a law professor. He's well known for his writings on a constitution and also the white paper on Hong Kong. Uh, Zhang Shikung makes the argument that Xi Jinping thought brings together all these strands and reconnects Chinese socialism and Marxism with Chinese culture. And he says it's a simple line. Under Mao, China stood up. Under Deng Xiaoping, China got rich. And under Xi Jinping, China is strong. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Professor Timothy Cheek of the University of British Columbia and Asia Institute's Dr Delia Lin. We're discussing the ideological governance of Xi Jinping and the extent to which it's a return to the methods of Mao.
Delia, you talk about uh, this fighting of liberalism. Why is it that she has felt compelled to do that after decades of economic reform? What's changed? It's a really million-dollar question, but very complex uh, question. We we don't really know what he was thinking when he was doing that. And of course, certainly when he uh, started in late 2012, there were different speculations as to where he's taking China. And even um, people were thinking that possibly he was going to take China on the liberal path, but then very quickly had a roundabout turn. So that surprised a lot of people, surprised a lot of Chinese, surprised the West, of course, and intellectuals as well. Why did he do that? I mean, Tim said it really right last night in his lecture, that saving China is to save the party. So party and China, for them, are together. It's impossible for the Chinese Communist Party to see the party leadership being undermined in their eyes in any way. They would not tolerate two-party system. They would not tolerate fractions within the party, that Communist Party uh, divided into two or three parties. They did not want that. They, they want perennial rule. Did of they the feel that economic opening has threatened that core unity? I believe so. Yes, yes. Well, because... I don't think Xi Jinping's an idiot. You know, he sees the corruption. You know, he sees the crass commercialism, and he doesn't like it. He's an idealist of a kind of plutocratic sort. You know, he grew up in the uh, uh, communist red, you know, uh, aristocracy. And he really, I think, he wants to see less corruption. And I think we would agree with him. Our problem is his solution and what we might think of as solution. And this is your your counter-reformation. Yeah. Now, explain this, um, how you you link it to what happened in the Catholic Church. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so as I talk to folks about what is Xi Jinping doing and, and uh, what kind of Maoism it is, I said, yeah, it's Maoism, but it's Liu Xiaoqi-style Maoism. And they go, well, wait a minute, wasn't Liu Xiaoqi the guy who got purged in the Cultural Revolution, so what's the deal here? The Communist Party itself says that Mao Zedong Zixiang, Maoism, is a collective, is the crystallization of the collective wisdom of the party. And Mao was really just the figurehead. And so the only person who disagreed with that was, well, Mao, right? And so when Mao was alive, that was a problem. But Mao's not around to uh, start another cultural revolution. So the bulk of the party, including Xi Jinping, is all about saying, okay, now we can resort this out. And we're going to have Maoism, but it's going to be this sort of Maoism. And the difference between the last 20 years, Deng Xiaoping's initial response after the Cultural Revolution was, this has all gotten out of hand. Stop talking about ideology because it's too chiliastic and we're all killing each other. You know, it's, it's kind of like you know, all the religious wars in Europe. And he just said, we're going back to basic Marxism. We're going through a capitalist stage before we can make socialism, but the party will be in charge. I call that the Leninist Protestant Reformation, right? They're going to change from worshipping Mao to just following some procedures. And the problem is, by the time you get into the 2000s, people don't believe in anything. As Delia says, it, you know, communism is a walking corpse. You know, nobody believes in this anymore. And there's this corruption, and there's this pollution, and then there's the growing uh, split. And so everyone's thinking, what do we do? Our liberal friends say, now's the time for elections and rule of law. And, you know, this is how we're going to handle corruption and uh, misallocation of resources. Xi Jinping says, no. We're going back to the good old days, the proper Mao, Mao when he was in a good mood. And that is we're going to have ideological unity. We're going to make sure that the Communist Party is in charge because China's too big and diverse and Chinese people aren't ready. Um, and that's 88 million people. And we're going to make sure they're good people. 
And they're going to be good people because they're going to be self-cultivated. But they're going to be cultivated according to Mao Zedong thought. And that's going to be rectification. And that's, kid you not, they have study meetings. I mean, it's like, can you imagine Trump sitting down with a study meeting with Pompeo and said, let's just read some of the Bible and think about how we you know, could do better governance here, right? And we all look at it like this must be insane. And yet it makes sense to the party elite. So As, she is effectively Pope. Exactly. And he does. He has the power. Why did he get that power? Is that because he's a megalomaniac? Maybe, maybe not. But again, with the, the extension of Mao to top leadership in the mid-1940s, it was a group decision. They said, the pressures we're facing are too strong. We need to have a strong single leader to get this done. And once this all gets sorted and the bad eggs are culled out, well, then we can talk about having a little more, um, you know, local autonomy or something like that. And so it's a fundamental faith in the ruling groups of China that a single leader, that a moral code, and that a sort of an ethical politics, as opposed to what we have in the West, which is an interest politics that is mediated by rules. But where does that sit in the broader lexicon of, of Chinese society? I mean, you talk about the support of the elites uh, and, of course, the party. But what about the people? Yeah, what do the 1.4 billion think and what options do they have? But first of all, they don't have options. They all feel it. You ask ordinary people, is ideology real? Today, they will tell you, yes, it is. Uh, Ten years ago, they would say, ah, who cares? But today, everybody is very cautious. You talk to anyone who are party members, who are not party members, who are communism believers, non-believers, everybody will tell you, well, I need to be careful with what I say on WeChat. And if I set up a WeChat group and uh, any member says something wrong, then I will get into trouble. I may go to jail. So people really believe in that kind of censorship. But then whether or not they agree with it, that's a different question. And when you ask Chinese intellectuals on these issues, whether this is good or bad or what, don't you feel uncomfortable in this environment? They would tell you, the Chinese people are lazy. And I said, what do you mean by lazy? You said, they're lazy. Because as long as they don't get arrested themselves, they don't really care what's happening to other people. They don't care what's happening in Xinjiang. They don't care what's happening next door. They don't care what's happening to a colleague who just got arrested for absolutely no reasons. They don't care as long as it doesn't happen to them. And those people who actually worry that this might happen to them because there's no real rule of law or transparent rule of law, anybody can get into trouble at any time, then this society is not safe. Those people are the minorities. There are not many people like that. And they usually are very lonely. Um, they usually have to be very careful with what they say. And even if they're communicating uh, that message to their family and friends, their family and friends will stop them. That, that paints a picture of, of Chinese people as incredibly passive. Well, I wouldn't say passive. I'd say actually quite savvy. The state is quite powerful. And in a certain regard in your public life, it will step in and come after you in big and ugly ways. But it's very constrained. You just need to refrain from using certain words. You sh most certainly should not organize anything separate from the party. That's the fundamental rule of Leninism. Never let the other guy organize. And this is a reality for their life. There is a wonderful tradition. I call China the insubordinate society. They've had dictatorial emperors and, and Chiang Kai-shek and Mao and others that tell them what to do and want to perfect them. And, you know, they don't care. You know, they, they carry on with their lives. And, you know, I celebrate the Chinese uh, people's ability to dissemble in front of the authorities. But it's real. And it's not the same as here. And that's why so many people come out, you know. But all in all, even with the unhappy with the WeChat censorship and unhappy with 
local corruption in the party. Everyone I know feels the need for some sense of order, and by gum, the Counter-Reformation provides that sense of order. He's going to... Totally agree. He's going to do it. He's going to cashier the evil bishops. He's going to clean up the monasteries, but he will burn the Protestants, that is, the Wei Chuan lawyers, at the stake. So I guess the question being asked in the West is that desire for order, that ability to be savvy, put up against decades of economic reform and and opening to an outside world, which might sound like a phrase, but really means much more interaction with international institutions. What balances the other? How successful is she with this form of ideological governance, with this providing a really narrow path for people? How do you measure success? Is he successful? I would say he is, Um, because people are buying it. The way that education is now conducted in China and there's the narrow, really narrow, almost next to none space for talking about liberalism. And as I said at the beginning, ideology is real right now because it's not just a brand anymore. There is a systematic building exercise going on in China, all the rules. So if we really want to talk about the traditional ideas and how, how she's using traditional ideas, it's really a combination of Confucianism and legalism. So using laws, using rules, rules and regulations, and that's she's definition of a rule of law or the socialist rule of law, rules and regulations to regulate. On one way, yes, people can be trained to be perfect, but at the same time, now we're done really believe that. They themselves don't believe that. So there must be rules and regulations in place. And we see so many rules and regulations uh, to punish people if they don't do the right things, right things in the party's eyes. And this has been successful. In many ways, it's, and again, I don't want to overstate it, but it's like a theocratic state where stuff that we would consider to be personal morality or religious sentiment are wrapped into politics. Of course, it's an atheist regime, so they're not talking about God. But they are talking about public morality and legislating public morality through these systems. And Daly is absolutely right. They talk ideals, but they are also very strict on the rules. And the, the tradition of legalism in China, which is where law is the extension of state power, not the check on state power. How consistent is it, though? And I'm thinking here of of the protests that we saw at the end of last year by university students who were unhappy about corporate greed, they were unhappy about inequality, and they were silenced really quickly. And yet, arguably, what they were unhappy about are the sort of things that uh, Xi Jinping would be also... It was the wrong sort of Marxism. Just going and trying to unionise workers? What sort of Marxism is that? Right? Exactly. You, you and don't, don't do the thinking and let the party do the thinking. Because, and that's interesting <laughs> because Marxism is what, uh, is what she has absolutely grabbed hold of and, and talked about. Synthesized. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You got and, it. So, but, so that raises the question of, of why Marx? I mean, Xi Jinping calls him the greatest thinker in the history of mankind. Absolutely. No, those students, a number of them were from Peking University, but other universities, and went down to the Shenzhen area to say, we're Marxists and the workers are getting a raw deal and, you know, it's our job, right? It was very awkward. You know, it's like for the church, because I keep coming back to the organizational church, you know, it's like a bunch of Christians running around saying, you got to give away all your money. And they're going like, well, not right now. You know, listen to the hierarchy. And I think that it was awkward and embarrassing that the students were showing up that the party, in fact, is not taking care of the workers. But I think their greater concern was that they were organizing without permission. And that, I think, is the deadly sin. But of all the ideologies that she could have grasped, 
Why Marxism? Path dependency is what he was raised with. You know, when we have problems in our societies, we don't go looking to Stalinism or to, you know, BJP. You know, we go to traditions within Australia or Canada or the United States. He could have, he could have skipped Marx and gone straight to Mao. Uh, because the party does claim Marx as well as Mao. And the purpose of Marx is to show that Chinese communism is not just about China. It's global. It is the answer for the world. And the best of the West. And it is truth. Universal truth. Scientific. Scientific. And, universal truth. And not culturally limited. Of mm. course, we have our Chinese version of it, and you should have your Australian version of it. It's not necessarily Marx as Marx wrote. Well, you know, it has to be applied. There is no abstract Marxism, comrade. Mm. There's, there's only concrete, you know, with local characteristics, meat pies, the whole thing. It, it's proven very adaptable. <laughs> And that's the way it should be. This is all about uh, dialectical materialism. You've got to look at the reality. Of uh, you don't look at ideals, what is the best, but you look at the real situation. And I think China. that's a helpful way to look because we're really struggling with what do we make of Xi Jinping's ideology and Maoism, and what does is to come back to what are the practical problems that any government of this thing that is the size of the Qing Dynasty, the People's Republic of China, if it wasn't Mao, if it wasn't Xi Jinping, who would and how would? And so when you look at the problems that they have in terms of, you know, 26, 27, 8 province-sized units, all sizes of mid-sized European states, all with the same population of Australia or bigger, right? They're supposed to work together. You know, the EU can't do it. So what I think is the real challenge for Chinese intellectuals is I don't think people really believe broadly in communism or Marxism, Leninism, and even Maoism as a formal ideology, even though they have Maoist habits in their way of thinking. So in that sense, we're at the East German moment, or, you know, the Polish moment, when they, you know, Vaclav Havel, Czechoslovakia, they said, you know, we don't believe. But it's not Helsinki moment, right? The West is not better, right? They make better handsets than we do. There's no obvious alternative form of governance. And I really think that everybody is struggling. And so part of Xi Jinping's success is this is plausible. This is familiar. And he's very lucky. He's lucky he's in this moment. Every politician needs a bit of luck, and he's very lucky yes. so in this th- moment of history. Do you think he is sustainable, this counter-reformation? Does it continue to work? It would only work when the economy would continue to go well, and it's not going to. So for people to respond strongly to that is when people's lives are being affected. I don't buy any predisposition argument. I don't buy any suja argument. But I do believe that, unfortunately, Xi Jinping's ideological push is working because it is so embedded in the institution building. It's everywhere. It's real. And uh, people are not or are not able to resist too strongly. I mean, the resistance is huge. If you look at WeChat, the things that people send, the political satire, the creative ways of coming up with the new terms, is amazing. They're using all those euphemisms, and, and just it's refreshing every single day. But that's not rebellion. And that's, that's not rebellion. And that's very much like uh, Eastern Europe in the 1980s. But it's not a functional alternative that they can see. There is no easy answer. I don't think. And I think Xi Jinping's greatest sin, we can sort of save the ideological governance and this, you know, stuff. It it comes at a great cost, but it works, this, that. His greatest sin was to break the succession. You know, now he can be leader forever, right? And whether he does well or poorly, he's going to die at some point or get pushed out a window. Uh, And then China is in a mess because 
it won't have trained anyone. Whatever we thought of the Jiang Zemin, uh, Hu Jintao, they had a 10-year cycle. And I think that's his greatest sin, his greatest... Uh, He's not preparing no, China. No. But empires don't, don't last forever. No, they don't. But the real problem I see is that under the current conditions, this ideological governance is working for now. We see all kinds of costs and we see all kinds of limitations. But it's not going to change until some other option becomes apparent to people. And we just hope, I think my hope, is that the uh, institutional builders inside the Communist Party, people like Yu Ping, try to build more regular committee work inside the party. Remember, it's 88 million people, but I don't know. And we can only sigh and hope for the best. But it's getting more and more difficult, I think, uh, this sort of bright future uh, because of lack of communication within China and lack of uh, knowledge in alternative ways of dealing with problems and also lack of even space in talking about alternative ways of looking at things. What ideology does is to really train people uh, to see problems in a certain way. Ten years ago, they could still discuss or they could still have access to different ways of thinking, but now that's not possible throughout education system. You're so right. And I think you know, part of this uh, Protestant Reformation thing was in between 1995 and you know, 2010-12, there was enough of globalization that people were beginning to learn how to do uh, community activism. And a lot of it was nimbyism, but that's the first stage of public activity. You know, you don't want this factory built in your backyard, and that's a beginning of speaking up as a collective way. And so part of what Xi Jinping wants to stop is like, no, we don't want people developing democratic habits. And you can't be what you can't see. Right. And there's a, a bitter irony to the elite view that the Chinese people are not ready for democracy. They're being dumbed down by this system. They're being denied the opportunity to that's, develop that's themselves. Which exactly is my argument. It's exactly my argument. Your point. Yeah, it's, exactly it's a political system that, that will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. It is an absolutely fascinating conversation and one that I think that we need to revisit uh, in the months and, dare I say, years ahead. Delia and Tim, thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Pleasure. Thank my you, My pleasure. Thank you much. Our guests have been China historian Professor Timothy Cheek from the University of British Columbia and China political scientist Dr Delia Lin from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 10th of May 2019. Produced Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.